I want, I want to give you some thoughts about the Gospel of Mark before we actually read the text. Um, most commentators believe that Mark, and when I say most commentators, I say that a lot and, uh, because I don't want to say definitively that this is exactly right because there, there's a doctrine that's exactly right. Doctrine is definitive. But when you're looking at historical things and you're trying to interpret things that uh, have a, a little bit of leeway, uh, I don't want to be dogmatic. I'm a dogmatic person, but I don't want to be too dogmatic. But most people believe that Mark is the first gospel that was written. And even though, you know, we, we have the idea since it comes differently in the text that, you know, Matthew, it, it, that, that'd be the first one written. But, but Mark's probably the first one that's written. It was written before the temple was destroyed. It was probably the earliest in time. Uh, most scholars see some uh, people in writing uh, the Synoptic Gospel, which is Matthew and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synoptic gospels. It means that they have some commonalities. John is different. John is written in a different style. But So they, they think Matthew and Luke take some things from Mark. And of course, they're written by people who at least either saw firsthand, the firsthand accounts of events and heard the teaching of Christ or someone who, in Mark's case, uh, most commentators believe, most scholars believe that he is an interpreter of Peter, that he um, got his information, what he didn't get firsthand, he got it from Peter. And there are some things that you see in Jesus' ministry in Mark that Mark wasn't there, could not have been there. But you go into First Peter, and Peter calls him my son, Mark, my son. And it's a very term of endearment, which means Mark was his, probably came to Christ under Peter and was his pupil and follower. And so Mark is writing about what um, Peter has related to him. And, and so that what Mark didn't know firsthand. You also remember that Jeff's been preaching through Acts, and he says sometimes the writer of Acts, which is Luke, says we went, and sometimes he says they went. You know, and so sometimes he's with Paul, sometimes he's not. So he relates in the book of Luke what he got from uh, the apostles and firsthand accounts, and so it's the same thing with Mark. Mark is Mark is a recorder of, of history. And the Gospel of Mark is different in the sense that it is not a, it's, a, it's not a biography. It is a presentation of Jesus as the Christ, the first half. He deals with the events of Jesus' life. He doesn't start with his birth. He doesn't start with the virgin birth. He doesn't start with the prophecies concerning his birth. He, he doesn't deal with that at all. And here, here's probably the reason why. I'd say probably the reason why is because if you remember when we were in Revelation and we came to chapter 5 and we're in the throne room of God, there were four creatures there that had, and, and one had the face of a, uh, a lion, one had the face of a calf, or actually it'd be an ox, and uh, one had the face 
of a man and one had the face of an eagle. You remember that? And again, some theologians believe that the Gospels relate to those creatures. And so you say, well, how, how, how is it possible? Matthew presents Christ as the, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He presents Christ as the fulfillment of the Jewish prophecies concerning the Messiah. Uh, Matthew is full of references to the Old Testament. It is full of Jewish customs. Matthew is primarily written to Jewish people. Saying, and now the Bible for all of us, it is for all ty- people of all races for all time. But primarily he is presenting through the genealogies, both on Joseph's side and Mary's side. He is, he is proving that Jesus has a right to rule on the throne of David as prophesied throughout the Old Testament and that he has the right because he is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When you come to Mark, Mark is uh, written in a little different language. It doesn't really uh, refer a lot to Jewish customs. And sometimes when he does, he explains them, which means that he's writing to an audience that's not Jewish. And again, most believe he's writing to uh, or writing from and maybe for the benefit of a Gentile church, probably Rome. And he's, he's writing to the Gentiles and explaining that Jesus is not the Jewish Messiah. He does it because, again, they don't know Judaism and they're not familiar with Judaism. But he's saying he's the Christ that's coming to the world. He's the Savior of the world. And the first half of Mark proves that with events and teaching. And he, he magnifies the events of Christ's life, the miracles and the, the, and the events and teaching. And the latter half, he shows him going to the cross. So the latter half of the book of Mark is, is Jesus going to the cross for the sins of the world. And so, so we'd say Mark is written for a Gentile audience. Uh, Luke is written for, uh, and, and Luke would correspond, okay, so... So Mark would correspond with the creature with the face of a calf or an ox. He is a servant. That's what humanity uses oxen or cattle for servants, for to make their life easier, to plow and all that, you know, to bear burdens and all those. So here is Jesus as a servant. Servants don't need a genealogy. So he doesn't even deal with the genealogy. He doesn't get, he starts with his baptism, he starts with the beginning of his ministry. He doesn't deal with his childhood at, at all. Because if you're a servant, you don't need a genealogy. Nobody's interested in your genealogy if you're a servant. And so he uses some Latin words that are not used in the other gospel, which, and, which as they're transliterated into English that we read, it means that he, those, his audience would understood those. So those, uh, a, a Gentile audience, maybe again at Rome. Luke would represent the face of a man. Luke presents Jesus as the perfect, perfect man. And then John would represent him as the eagle, and the eagle would be the, the it says a flying eagle in Revelation, so it would be the Holy Spirit. And he is the God incarnate in the flesh. He is the, he is the third part of the Trinity. He is the Son of God. He is the, the height of 
uh, of God's essence made known to the world. And so it's really interesting when you look at those things in depth. And if you, if you really want to have a little bit of confusion, there, most of the time we assume that this Mark who authored this is John Mark that went with, he is the nephew of Barnabas who went with Paul on his travels and but but when you when you look at the whole of the scripture how could he be with Peter because they didn't minister together they were only Paul and Peter were only together a couple of times and and John Mark was the uh, a nephew of Barnabas Barnabas is from up in Antioch and so it's just really interesting so who is this Mark and, and tell you the truth not sure, uh, but there, there are many scholars who believe he's a different Mark because he's a Mark that was discipled by Peter and was beloved by Peter and ministered with Peter. And so it's, it's really interesting. And so you say, well, why'd you bring that up? Because it's there and I think it's interesting. And you say, well, who do you think it is? Have no idea. We will find out one day. We, we will know. And we will meet, if there's two of them, we'll meet both of them. And uh, one's not greater than the other. The Lord, you know, the Lord sometimes uses anonymous people, like, like the book of Hebrews. When we studied Hebrews, no one knows for sure who wrote Hebrews. And uh, no one knows for sure. And there's people who are dogmatic about it, and, but they don't know for sure. They've just chosen a side and made up their mind. And so we don't know for sure here. But every gospel has a purpose, and this one is to present Christ. He gives the facts of Jesus' ministry. He gives the events of Jesus' ministry. And maybe was written for a training aid for new Christians. Maybe was written, because it was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We know that, because all the Bible was. But maybe it was written so people would have a written account. See, up until this time, there were just verbal accounts, and it was transmitted as an oral gospel. Uh, but so now it's written down and people can refer to it and they can, when they debate or argue or discuss or study, they have some authentic material to refer to. So it is the infallible and errant word of God written down regardless of exactly who Mark was. But when Peter calls him my son, it's just an indication and no one questions the fact that this is Peter's account and Mark writes it down. Mark is um, his recorder of the things that Christ did. So um, here we read in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I don't want to belabor every verse, but there's some things that, you know, I think are just very interesting. When, when we read this in English, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning reminds us of Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created. And what this means in, in the Hebrew words, what this means, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I just read. But what this means is that when it says in the beginning of the gospel, it, 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 it's an epic beginning. It, it means it's, it's world trans, it, it, it is world, uh, what's the word I want to use? It, it is a world changing event. And we know that it is. This, this is the hinge point of history. There's all of history until the ministry and death of Christ and all of history after that. 
and, and the New Testament points back to that. The Old Testament pointed toward it. But all of man's history hinges upon the coming of Christ, the ministry of Christ, the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. Or these 33 years that Christ was here, this is the hinge point of history, of all of history, of every race, color, creed, country, nation. This is it. And a lot of people just don't know that. But they're going to know it one day. And he has affected the, the, the world. And so John is saying that. And the people who are reading this understood the word. They understood that John believed, uh, that, excuse me, Mark, Mark believes that this is a significant event. When they would, um, when Augustus was born, it was a gospel. Gospel means good news. It means it, it's a it's a verb and a noun. The verb means that it is to herald something. The noun means the information that is heralded. And so, when there would be in their day and time, there would be um, when there was something going to happen, or there's going to be a taxation, like you read in Luke chapter one. When there was going to be something that was of national importance, there would send out heralds. And they would go through the country or the, or the city or the town or however big the event was. And they would proclaim that this is going to happen. And, and so here he is saying, this is the proclamation of this world changing event. This is the beginning. This is the epic beginning of this time frame that of the gospel of, this, of, of Jesus Christ, the son of God. It's just very, very powerful, and we don't read it as that. We, we want to read our five chapters a day, and we just go through that, and, and so it just he, so he's saying he got their attention right off the bat. He's saying this is life changing. So when you're reading this, it's life changing. It is significant. You need to grasp it. And then he says this in verse uh, two down through verse three. The beginning, or as it is written in the prophets, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And that is uh, a quotation from Malachi, which was a quotation from Isaiah. And so here he is saying that it's written in the prophets. Isaiah and Malachi, that there's going to be a forerunner. There's going to be a person who comes and heralds the information about the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this, this is the herald who's coming, and we know that is John the Baptist. And then it tells us that here in verse 4, John and he is John the Baptist here, this John. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. So when we read about John, and again, in the other Gospels, you have the beginning of John. You have the uh, pregnancy of Elizabeth, who we realize he's a cousin 
to Jesus and you have that information about John. But if you're, if you're writing to a Gentile audience, that makes no difference at all. They don't, they're not interested in that. But he's just saying, John came and John came preaching repentance and a baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. Now, the Jewish people did not get baptized. The Jewish people had some ceremonial washings. But when a, when a Gentile wanted to convert to Judaism, they would baptize them in immersion. They would, they would baptize them by immersion. Baptism is never sprinkling. Baptism is not, that's not baptism. The word itself means immersion. And so they would immerse a Gentile. And so for a Jew to, to be baptized, they would be admitting, I am a sinner like the Gentiles. Just because I'm Jewish in, in, my, in my ontology, my being, doesn't mean that I'm not a sinner like the Gentiles. And, and they were repenting. They were repenting of their sin and being willing to be subject to baptism by John the Baptist, which is really unheard of. This is, this is a phenomenon that's taking place among the Jewish people who are following and coming to John for baptism. They are, it's a work of the Holy Spirit. They are convicted and uh, they're serious about it. And so uh, they, they're, they're coming to John and you think, okay, why, why the excitement? When we read that uh, verse 5, then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were baptized in the Jordan River. The Jews basically considered the Jordan River to be an unclean, unclean river. You know, they, uh, but, but at the same time, they didn't care. That's where John was. He was baptizing them, and they were coming from all that area uh, and coming to him to be baptized. Common people, we're going to read, if you read the other Gospels, you recognize it was tax collectors and soldiers uh, that they were coming, and maybe soldiers of the temple, maybe Jewish soldiers, soldiers and maybe some Gentile soldiers of, of Roman legions, that they were coming to him to, to be baptized. It, and it was significant that this was happening. Uh, it, it, I, I don't know how to impress upon you that, again, this is part of that epic thing that's happening in Israel. Now think about the circumstances. Israel had heard, they had had the prophets, and the prophets had dec- decreed that there's going to come one in the spirit of Elijah, and he's going to prepare the way of the coming of the Messiah. I'm just summarizing, but they, they believe that. They knew, they knew the Messiah was coming. This, their Old Testament scriptures taught that. That's what they were looking for. And imagine what had happened since Malachi had closed at, at the Old Testament canon, and hundreds of years have passed, and there's been no word from God. Hundreds of years had passed, and there had not been a prophet like John the Baptist. There had been prophets, and there had been people who came claiming to be the Messiah. But they amounted to nothing, and nothing came of their ministry. If you read a little uh, church history, or, not, or even history of Israel, uh, Edersheim, Albert Edersheim has a great book, about a thousand pages, and uh, if you read that, you had a seminary education. But what, what happens is that they didn't, they didn't want to dwell under the authority of the Romans. And they, they, they misunderstood their theology, which happens to a lot of us. The, their theology was that when Christ came, he was going to liberate them from the Romans. 
that they again would be what they were under David and Solomon, that they would be the number one authority of the region, that they would be dominating their world, and that the Messiah would rule and reign, and they would reign with him. And you remember um, uh, John and James's mother asked that of Jesus when you come into uh, come to your throne. She wasn't thinking about in heaven. She was thinking about oh, in Israel. Pretty soon, when you're sitting on the throne, let let my sons be on your right hand, your left hand. We, they want to rule and right. See, they thought it was happening when the Messiah came that there was going to be a revolution and there was going to be a conquering and Israel would reign again. And so they were looking for that. They were under heavy taxation, under the Roman bondage. They didn't have full freedom. They had a lot of freedom, but but they chafed under their uh, under the Roman bondage. Uh, it's really it's really interesting. Is that th- you see this you see this pattern in in, in so many societies is that there have been colonizations that have taken place in the 16th, 17th century, and, and, and people chafed under that. Maybe their life was actually better. Maybe physically, maybe there was safety, and may, maybe there was more commerce under some dominant ruler who, who with their armies, made peace. Uh, but yet, at the same time, people want to be free. People want to be independent. They want to be... Uh, it's just really, and, and that's our nature. That's our, our nature wants to, we, we want to be, we don't want anybody telling us what to do. Bottom line. Right? <laughs> I don't want anybody telling me what to do. You probably, you probably don't either. We submit to that sometime grudgingly because that's how life works. And we've realized, okay, I don't have to submit to that, but when I don't, I get slapped around. And so either I got to like the slapping around or I've got to submit and try to, you know, live with what is. And so that's just human nature. And, and they were looking for the Messiah. And when John comes and he comes in the spirit of Elijah and they recognize, I mean, here's a guy clothed just like Elijah. He was clothed in this rough clothing and he lived in the wilderness and he had a, 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 he had a definitive message. The, the kingdom is going to repent. The Messiah is going to repent because the time is at hand. And, and boy, were they ready. And they acknowledged. So it wasn't just secular that they cared about. They acknowledged their sin. Personally, they began to acknowledge their sin and their sinful. And they, were, they showed it by getting baptized. That's so interesting. The scripture makes it very plain. Their baptism didn't save them. It was an identification with John's message. It was saying, I believe I'm a sinner. I'm willing to do that to show my heart. And so that's what they were doing. So it's very exciting. And the whole region comes. Now, not every person, but it just means that this was well known. And these people were coming and they were making it known. And it's something exciting going on. And then John's message that that he gives to them in verse 7. It's a message uh, about Christ. We read in verse 7, and he preached saying, there comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
you, you remember they asked John, you read in the other Gospels, if you read them together, they asked John, are you the Christ? And he said, no. And here, here's the outcome. He's saying that I, I, I'm just the herald of one who is coming after me who's mightier than I am, which means he's different, he's different than I am. Uh, he is one who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John is saying, my baptism doesn't save you. The Holy Spirit is going to come and the Holy Spirit saves you. And he's saying, I'm just proclaiming that he's coming. And, and so he didn't want them to get the wrong idea. He wanted them to understand that, that he is um, just a servant of Christ, a servant of God. It's really interesting. I think John the Baptist's ministry, John, John was a great person. In fact, Jesus utilized him and said that no, no greater man has been born a woman than John the Baptist to that point in time. It's really interesting, isn't it? You think about, okay, there was Moses, there was David, there, there was Adam, you know, whoop, Adam wasn't born a woman. So anyway, there was all those Old Testament saints. And he said this about John the Baptist. And I don't, know, I don't fully understand that. I don't know exactly why. John was that significant. See, this again, this is the change of the world. And John was that significant that Jesus would say that about him. And then Jesus goes on and says that you who believe today are greater, that you're going to do greater works than John did. Now, how's that possible? We who believe today can do greater works than John did. And, and why? It's because we have more information about Christ. We have the Holy Spirit who resides within us and has sealed us and teaches us the whole counsel of God, if we're willing to read it and study. He teaches us the whole counsel of God. John didn't have that. Remember, John goes into prison later, and because he is imprisoned, and Jesus is not conquering Judea and Israel. Jesus is not leading a rebellion. John sends a messenger to Jesus. Even this is after John has said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And after he baptized him. But it's after that. He, he believed who Jesus was. He didn't understand what Jesus was doing. And you remember Jesus' answer to him? Jesus said, go back and tell John. He told the messenger, go back and tell John that you see the fulfillment of what Isaiah had to say. The blind are receiving their sight. The deaf hear. Um, the people are healed. They're raised from the dead. And he said, you go back and tell him that this is the work of God, that, that I'm doing the work of God. And uh, then he he's. And, and he said, and don't be ashamed. You know, don't, don't be frightened that it's not what you think. Don't, don't be ashamed of me. Don't, because I'm not fulfilling your expectation, but I'm fulfilling basically God's expectation. So when I think about John, John had a very limited role and he performed it exactly the way God wanted him to. And he was willing to do that. John, you imagine the ego trip. Uh, I'll confess to you, there's some ego involved in being your teacher. Um, you listened to me for 50 minutes last week, and only a few of you got up and left. So, but 
and, and I know you had business to take care of. You had to go and make the church work. Either that or you just got sick of it and said, I've had enough today. So my mother-in-law came years ago and she just said, well, you're just having another church service is all you're doing. And I mean, that's my grandmother-in-law, I guess, my grandmother-in-law. And she just said, y'all just having two church services. You have one in here and you have a big one. See, it's a, which if you're, if you're from a different deal, that's the way it works. You know, most Bible classes are discussion groups. <laughs> so there's some ego involved here. I'm confessing that to you. And all the years I was a pastor, almost without exception, I sat on the front pew waiting for my turn. And I would say to the Lord, who is sufficient for these things? And no one. And the answer is no one. But my sufficiency comes from you. And that's how I feel today. I, I, I battle my ego. I like speaking. I like teaching. I like studying and I like teaching. And, and, but I battle my ego. I'm being very honest with you. I battle my ego about it being about how I do as opposed to what God says. And I, I hope, I, I, I want to get that across. This is what God is saying. It doesn't matter what I say. This is what God is saying. And John had a limited role. You know, and the truth is we all have a limited role. All of us have a limited role. Sometimes, Mom, you, you may have thought, my role is just raising my kids and, you know, keeping the household going and, and maybe working outside at the same time. And that was a, a limited role. I wanted to do something great for God. If your kids got saved, you did something great for God. There's nothing more significant. There's nothing more significant than that. And, and you know, when, when we live for Him, there's nothing more significant than that. God doesn't need anything from any of us. He didn't need anything from uh, Charles Spurgeon. He didn't need anything from the Apostle Paul. He didn't need anything from anyone. But our faith honors Him. Our faith in Him. Our belief, our trust in Him honors Him. We're going to recognize in the church service the the Awana clubs and the workers. Some Some are in here. There's no more significant ministry in the church than teaching our children. You know, you're laying foundations for, for their lives. And so I, I just want you to understand, John had a limited role. We have a limited role. But it doesn't mean our role's not significant. Our, our role is what God ordained for us, and he wants us to be faithful, and we will be rewarded accordingly. And, and I hope you grasp that. It gives you peace in your heart. It gives you hope. It, it gives you a, a joy that my mundane living, that I see it as mundane life, honors God. It honors God. Uh, when I go about my daily routine to make life work, I, I used to, John Calvin was the first writer who taught that everyday work is a ministry. And I believe that. You know, we, we tend, sometimes in the church, we tend to say there is um, full-time workers and then there's the laity. I hate that term. I never use that term. You're not the laity. I'm not the I, I'm, I'm not a minister in the sense of I got paid by the church 
to minister to you. See, minister is service. And, 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 and laity seems like there's a separation between the priesthood and we're talking about Catholic now or Episcopal or whatever, between the priesthood and between the regular people. And there is no, nothing in that in the scripture. If you work, if you work on a rig in the oil field, that is your ministry. You make life go around. We can't live without you. We can't, our, our society doesn't function without you. If you work at Walmart, our society doesn't function without you. You know, it doesn't, if, if you mow people's grass, our, our society doesn't function without you. I do, but our society doesn't function without you. Do you, under, you understand? What you do is significant to God. He doesn't want you to do something grand. He wants you to be faithful where you are, where you are. I read the Psalms and the psalmist says, Lord, don't forsake me in my old age. I guess what I'm praying that more and more all the time. Lord, don't forsake me in my old age. And you know what, he, you know what the psalmist is talking about? I mean, Lord, don't, don't let me give up on my ministry to you. Don't let me give up on my faith in you and my trust in you. Don't let me forsake you in my old age. Don't let me forsake that I'm not significant to you in my old age. And sometimes men struggle with that because our work is our identity. And when we no longer work, our identity suffers. And we have this problem of, are we significant? And sometimes mothers, when you've reared your children and they're gone and you don't have a lot of interaction with your grandchildren and you don't have this sense of significance. And I'm just saying to you, that's just not true. That's not biblically true. I don't even have that in my notes. I don't know where that all came from. I have about John's limited role. So, um, now, look with me about Jesus' baptism. And this may be all we do this morning. And verse 9, it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son and whom I am well pleased. So... Why was Jesus baptized? If the Jews were being baptized, showing that they were sinners and recognized their sinfulness, and they were submitting to baptism, which wasn't something that was regulated for them normally. It was for a Gentile professing Judaism. So why was Jesus baptized? He had no sin. He wasn't a sinner. And so it was a baptism of identification. You remember in one of the other Gospels, John said, Lord, you ought to be baptizing me, not me baptizing you. But Jesus says, suffer it to be true, suffer it to be so. And Jesus saying that we want to fulfill all things. And Jesus saying, I am identifying in my humanity, I am identifying with sinners. And by humanity, I'm identifying with the need of 
repentance and salvation in my humanity, even though his humanity never sinned, he is saying, I'm identifying with the people I came to save. And so that's why he was baptized. And the father approved that. When, when we read this about coming, when, verse 10, he come back from the water, he, he saw the heavens parting and the spirit descending on him like a dove. So the, again, these heavens parting, it, the, the wording itself means there was a rending of the heaven. I mean, there was something significant that happened. It was something that, that, that would have been very visible, very, uh, very plain. The, the heavens opened somehow. And, and the spirit comes down upon Jesus. And it says like a dove. And all the pictures we see, it is a dove coming down. You remember that? Oh, it's, a, it's a dove coming down. When we read about the Holy Spirit coming on the day of Pentecost to those in the upper room, it's like a dove. Come, but it's really, it, it doesn't mean that it's a dove. A dove is a symbol. A dove is a bird that doesn't defend itself. It's a bird that is it's not a it's not a raptor. It's not you know it's it's not an aggressive bird. But but it's a simple, John has to describe this somehow, and he he sees the manifestation of the Holy Spirit coming down and lighting upon Jesus, and he imagines. I'm, I'm, I'm imagining now what John imagined. So he imagines that he has seen birds that they come in and they come out of the horizon or out of the heaven and they come and they light upon the roost or they light upon the housetop or they light upon something. And he sees this spirit of God coming out of the heaven and the manifestation of the spirit. Of God. It could be in the shape of a dove. I just don't think that that has to be what it means. But he sees it and he has to describe it. And it's like a dove that comes and the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus. And it's visible, it's tangible, and, 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 and John sees it. And not just John, but all the people who are there that day. All, these people, they didn't all go away when Jesus came. So there, there are throngs of people still there and they see Jesus baptized. They see the heavens open up and they see the Holy Spirit manifestation come down uh, upon Jesus. And these things get passed around. These things are significant. It, 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 it's like wildfire. Wildfire just goes out in the community and, and is, is being passed around. Okay. I'm reading that clock. It's 10 after. Right, we'll do one more paragraph. Uh, so then you have the wilderness experience. So Jesus is endowed with the Holy Spirit, visibly he had, he had the Holy Spirit. He is God in the flesh. But, but now it's visible to the people. The Holy Spirit comes upon him. And what happens? Does his preaching become more important? Does he, is there a great revival, repentance? No. What happens in verse 12, immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness and he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan and was with the wild beasts and the angels ministered to him. This just really, John is saying, I mean, Mark is saying to us, boom, 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 boom. Mark is saying, the word immediately happens all the time. So Mark is just saying, these are the high points. These are significant things that happened in the ministry of Jesus. These are things you need to know for the foundation of your understanding. And when, he, when he's saying this thing, and he, and he talks about this 
wilderness experience. We know it was 40 days of the tempted of the devil. And, and when, when we read this here, um, he was with the wild beasts. None of the other gospels say that. And then at the end of it, the angels minister to him. Here's a couple things I wanted to say about that. Number one, Satan did not put him there. The Holy Spirit put him there. Now, why? I always ask, I always ask why. When you're reading the scripture, I always ask, I want to know why. What's God doing? Why did he do that? Here is Jesus in his humanity. Jesus in his humanity is just, see, he's just as human as you are. He is God. He, he, he is both. He's God and he's never going to sin, but he's just as human as you are. And Hebrews 4.15 says that he was tempted in all points as we are and yet without sin. And, and he's in this wilderness and he's tempted by Satan and he's tempted at all points. I, I just I summarized. You, you can read them in the other, the actual thing. But he was tempted um, he, about hunger, which is physical things. He was tempted to pride. He could have been a ruler without dying. He was he was tempted uh, to personal safety. Jump off the temple, or, and, and and God won't let God send an angel because the scripture said Satan said to him that you will not damage your foot. So you and so he was he he was tempted to all those things, and I don't think you know we we just again we read that and we think how different was but he goes forty days without food, and I think that every single minute of that time he is tempted, and and he is ravished. Why else would the angels come and minister to him afterward? The angels had to come and succor him and, and give him some physical human strength and fed him probably and, 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 and minister to him grace physically because it took all. And why? Why did he go through that? Why, why was he led by the spirit of the wilderness? And here's my understanding. Because of what we read in Hebrews, he is tempted in all points that we are yet without sin. Nothing ever is going to happen in your life that Christ hasn't faced that temptation and, and did it without sin. And he, and he identifies with me. He identifies with you. If you lost a loved one, he identifies with you. If you have, have, have struggled financially, he identifies. If you, if you struggle physically, he identifies with you. He identifies with your trials of life. In his humanity, he identifies with everything that we go through. I don't know about you, that's encouraging to me. That means when we pray to him, we say, Lord, I don't know what to do. Lord, I, I don't know how to feel. I, I don't know how to respond. Lord, I, I need encouragement, and, and Jesus needed encouragement. Lord, I, I think those 40 days he spent in the wilderness is much more severe than we can even imagine. I don't think we can imagine how terrible it was and when he goes through that. Okay, our time's going. I promised I wouldn't keep you as long as last week, so let me pray. We'll go to church. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for... Uh, Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, we, we thank you that this world changing event took place and that we can read about it and understand it. Lord, that we can grasp the, uh, 
uh, significance of it. And Lord, it's been significant in our lives when we came to faith in Christ and our life changed forever, uh, that we became your children, adopted into your family, and we are grateful. And all that happened because Christ came. All that happened because you ordained it before the foundation of the world. You prophesied it through the Old Testament and Christ came in fulfillment of that. Lord, how how blessed we are, and we acknowledge that before you this morning to your glory. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, see you at church. We'll take up there next week.